0: Let's bow together in prayer, please. Father, we do acknowledge you as our creator and our sustainer and our savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as Americans, this first day of the week, this Lord's day heading into 4th of July, we just want to pause and bow our heads and our hearts before you. We want to ask you to be a merciful God and to hold back your hand of wrath. And as has already been prayed this morning, to renew our hearts and to bring revival to our land. We pray that the word of God would penetrate hearts and homes and governmental offices. I pray, Father, that we would see an awakening, that we would see a restoration of biblical principles guiding our nation. We need your blessing. We long for your blessing. We ask for your blessing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know their stories well, and you know their names well. George Washington, Ben Franklin, Paul Revere, John Paul Jones, Patrick Henry, Elijah Clark. Men of courage, men of strength, men of conviction. I wonder what it would be like to gather a group of our founding fathers today and put them on a big coach bus... And tour America today. Here's some things we would point out. That hill right over there. There used to be a cross there, but our Supreme Court said you had to take it down. And driving on further, we would enter one of our major cities. And we would see a building, and we would point at that building, and we would say, Our Supreme Court determined that in that building they can slaughter babies by the thousands. Thank you for the great freedoms upon which you built this country. As we headed out of town, we would stop by the local high school, and we would say, by the way, you'll notice as they're having graduation today that they're not allowed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. It's illegal in America in a public school setting. As we move on, return to our nation's capital, We might come by the steps of the Supreme Court and we would want to point out to Tom and to Ben and to George, to Paul. Notice those men up there, they're kissing. And those women over there, as they hug and kiss, they get to get married today. That's how great this country is. I really don't think that those are the kinds of things that our founding fathers ever imagined could happen in this country. When we have built our country and our lives upon Judeo Christian value and upon principles of the Word of God, I'm not suggesting that all of these men were born again, but I am suggesting that they understood a righteousness that comes from God. And they understood that we have a creator. And they could never imagine a day when a teacher would stand in front of third graders and tell them that they came from their ancestors, the frog out of the slime. Utter nonsense. I don't think those are the kinds of freedoms for which George and Tom and Paul and Ben laid down everything they owned, set aside their personal agendas, and gave their lives almost unequivocally to nation-building. I don't think so. Well, these are strange days in which we live, clearly illustrated in the week upon which we've just closed. And it's easy to be cynical, isn't it? It's easy to say, this country doesn't understand what sin is. We don't understand what righteousness is. And it's easy to become angry, and it's easy to become frustrated. And though there is a time for a righteous indignation, I think that we need to recognize today that it's a, it's a time to pray. It's a time to be positive. It's a time to live out the claims of Christ with a grace and not with anger. It's a time to stand for righteousness with a calm courage, not with firepower. I thought that it would be good for us this Sunday where we acknowledge our country's birthday, and have a patriotic theme to revisit one of the more familiar stories of our entire Bibles. We have in this story a wonderful example of how to stand for God in a godless nation. I have to tell you that I think that this is an exercise that we will need to strengthen in ourselves because unless current trends would shift or change towards a more righteous direction, people who are God-fearing, Christ-following, and Bible-believing will be indeed even more marginalized and ostracized in this culture, labeled as hate-mongers, bigots, and angry fundamentalists. We can't control what people call us, but our challenge today is to not compromise our belief in God's Word one bit, and then to ask God to give us a special grace to know how to live calmly and quietly and courageously in such a day as this. It's Daniel chapter 3 where I want to invite you to turn this morning. It's a wonderful story of three courageous young men. We have actually three different parts to the story as far as those who are... The actors in the story. I want to be careful not to imply that this is just a play or a make-believe story. It's true history that is recorded for us. It really happened. It happened during the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was one of the great um, reigning empires of the world in, in history past. It's an identifiable period of time. The main king that ruled over the Babylonian Empire, was a man named Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was player number one in our story. We'll encounter him immediately as we begin to read. We're then going to encounter a group of lower-level officials. I have no doubt that they were part of the Nebuchadnezzar regime. They were part of the group of people who were influential in the eyes of the king. And they're going to influence him to take a stand against God-fearing young men. And that's our third group in the story. Three young men. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were their God-given names, I mean their parent-given names, in honor of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They were Israelite young men, and they grew up in Israel, but they grew up at a time when Israel was in decline. Israel was in such a decline at that time that, that voices, men of God, prophets like Jeremiah, for example, shouted to the nation to turn away from their sin and to turn back to God, but the nation who was once Israel, a God-fearing, God-following nation, a nation that once only had God as their king, they were a theocracy to begin with until they begged God for a king. They turned their hearts away from the fear of God and the love of God and the obedience to God. And so as a result, God sent them voices to warn them. Like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, prophets of God, men that spoke out. They spoke out in no uncertain terms. They cried out to the country. And they said things like this Have you no awe of God? Have you lost your awe? What is wrong with you? Have you no shame? You sin openly in the public places and you call evil good and you call good evil. What's wrong with you? Turn away before God judges you. And they, people mocked them and listened and refused, refused to listen to them. They used picturesque speech, word pictures like, why would you stop drinking from clear, cool springs of beautiful, pure water? that bubble forth from the springs of God? And why would you go and drink from broken, filthy cisterns that are a cesspool of waste? Why would you do that? And they refused to listen. R-rated language, like, why do you go a-whoring after other gods? You run after other gods like a camel in heat, running across the desert seeking satisfaction. And God is right here. These are the words of the prophets. And the people had no ears to hear. And so God did something that He told them He was going to do. He tipped, as it were, a boiling pot from the north. And that boiling pot that spilled down upon them from the north in judgment was the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. And they swept through. and They destroyed and they burned. But they noticed among the youth in Israel some young men who were outstanding. They were in good shape, and they were obviously bright and capable, and so they rounded them up, and they took them 700 miles to their home, to what would now, on our maps today, be Baghdad, Iraq. That's where it is. Saddam Hussein envisioned and spoke frequently and used used, um, artwork to regularly interface his image in an army military uniform with the flowing robes of the image of Nebuchadnezzar. It was on their coins. It was on murals on the city walls. Saddam Hussein pictured himself to be nothing other than a reincarnation, a present-day living version of Nebuchadnezzar of ancient days. And so they took these young men away from their fathers and their mothers and their parents. Many of their families were killed. The walls were broken down. The temple destroyed. Cities burned. The nations scattered all because of their hardness of heart and turning away from God. He desired to bless them. They refused to acknowledge Him. And so He sent judgment. It's a repeated pattern. We have to be fools to think it can't happen to us. So there they are, these young men. you know the most famous of the four that are written about in this great book of Daniel in our Old Testament. It's named after Daniel himself. And Daniel had at least three buddies with him. There were no doubt dozens, perhaps hundreds of Israelite youth. They brought them and it appears that they were emasculated and made into eunuchs. They changed their names, and from now on in our story, we will, instead of calling them their names that were named after God and Yahweh and Jehovah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they changed their names after pagan, despicable Babylonian gods, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're most known by those pagan names. They were removed and isolated from their homeland, their person was tampered with. They were re-identified with names from pagan gods, and then they were put into a re-education program. You'll recall that first familiar story in the book of Daniel, that's where Daniel spoke up and said, no, we will not eat the king's meat or drink the king's wine, and they had that 10-day testing period where they ate whole grains and vegetables, and after ten days it was seen that they were superior. So the king allowed everybody, change in everybody's diet. I doubt they were popular after that. <laughs> Chapter 2 in Daniel, you have the, the king having this strange dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, calls in all his wise men, says, I had a dream last night, interpret it for me. And they stood there waiting. All right, tell us the dream. No, you just tell me about my dream. If you don't tell me about my dream, I'm going to kill you. They're like, no one can do this. Daniel comes in, looks at him, and tells him his dream. So God has his hand on these young men. When we get to chapter 3, Daniel is absent. We don't know where he is. It's possible that um, he is at this point on the king's business. A number of years have gone by. These young men have matured they are involved in the political process they are high ranking officials and it appears that they have been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar to the highest positions of oversight in all of Babylonian of the Babylonian empire and he delegates his power down through them this evidently raises the the rankles of those under them of the Babylonian leadership and i have no doubt that part of what happened in this story is similar to what happened to Daniel many years later in our, in our Bibles, in uh, chapter uh, 6, the most familiar story of all of Daniel in the lion's den, you realize Daniel was probably about 85 years old at the time he was cast into the lion's den. What happened there was they, they put together a scheme to make it illegal to pray because they knew Daniel would pray so that they could throw him in the lion's den. I think that this is perhaps a similar type scheme But it very much appealed to the king's ego. Let's read our story and see what happens here. I want you first of all to understand what kind of person we're dealing with in Nebuchadnezzar. It begins, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, Daniel chapter 3 verse 1, whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and its breadth 6 cubits, that's 9 feet. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The first thing we see about our first character in the story, Nebuchadnezzar, is that he's very powerful. He's the king. He's not just a king. He's the king over the entire Babylonian empire. He's the most powerful man in the world. No one can speak to him in any way he does not want them to speak. He can snuff out a life with the snap of a finger. He's very powerful. He rules the entire world. But we also see as we read on that not only is he very powerful, but he's a very proud and arrogant man. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 2, sent to the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It doesn't say it directly in the passage, but it is implied that this image is no doubt of himself. He is so arrogant and so proud... and so presumptuous that he builds this 9 foot wide, 90 foot high, tall, skinny statue that has a reflection of himself in it, and then he rounds up and all of these satrap prefects, and governors are simply names of political officials and governmental workers who serve at different tiers around the entire Babylonian empire. You're going to see from the language of the story that they will gather all who are connected to the government, government of Babylonia, and they speak different languages and they come from different nations. So this is a a huge gathering out on the plain of Dura where this statue has been erected and this powerful, proud pagan, number three, he's a pagan king because he's going, watch the language of the story, he's going to ask them to bow down to him. You need to know, number four, that he's very politically insecure as well. As many powerful nation rulers are, they are paranoid in this part of the world, even to this day. They are just paranoid of those who would create a coup against them. They wouldn't sleep in the same bed two nights in a row. They wouldn't sleep in the same building. They wouldn't walk the same path. They wouldn't go down the same roads. They regularly interrupted their schedules for fear of predictability, for fear of assassination. So you have to understand that what's happening here is, at some level, a pagan ritual. It is idol worship. It is part of elevating Nebuchadnezzar to the level of a Babylonian god. But it's also a a political ploy. It is designed to, to... beat down the underlings and make sure that they bow down to the king. It is to test the loyalty of all. It is to ensure that no one in this system has any other thought than that King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man and you will bow down to him. And there's the setting on the plain of Dura with this powerful, proud, politically corrupt pagan king. The story now is going to turn a little bit as we imagine this great gathering. No doubt, literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of people gathered. It certainly had to be in the thousands. There was much ado. Great invitations had gone out. Time frames had passed so that they could gather. It was now the dedication of this statue and they were all given this command. Let's read on. The end of verse 2 says that they had come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then verse 3, all of these government officials, think of the state governors, all of the secretaries of state, treasurers, on down through the, the political congress and senates of state, senate nationally, then those in local dur- jurisdiction, mayors, council members, down to the sheriff's departments. They all gathered. Anybody who is connected in any way to to reinforcing Nebuchadnezzar's leadership even down to the lowest levels. The satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, verse 3, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed loudly... You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages. You see, there are people from all over the world because the Babylonian Empire was the world. You are to listen for the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. A huge orchestra was assembled. And no doubt they would play the national anthem anthem, or some song written about Nebuchadnezzar and his greatness. When you hear the music, you are to, look what it says, fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Listen, this is a country without a constitution. This is a country without a declaration of independence. This is a country without law, really, other than the king's word. This is a country without a declaration of individual rights. This is a country where whatever the king says, that's what you do. There is no misunderstanding what's going on here in the mind of every person who is in attendance, I'm sure. And so they they set it up in verse 6 just to make sure, and this is a picture again of how arrogant and shallow and hollow this king is. He says in verse 6 that whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe and the musicians, the the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and noticed the word they worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so the music plays, down they go, and the king stands there very pleased that all of these people love him and worship him. What a confused, deluded king. Their faces in the sand because they know, unequivocally, that if they even look like they don't bow down, they're going to be in the furnace of fire over which from which they've been threatened. And that's when we have our third cast members, set of members come out. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. This is our second group. They're the king's right-hand men. They came forward, verse 8, and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, verse 10, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship, verse 11, shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can't you hear it? These men, O king, and don't you love this? They pay no attention to you. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, little G, or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you got to see it, don't you? There's the, there's the desert plain. There's the image. There's thousands of flowing, robed servants of the nation gathered. The instruments play. I guarantee you it's like you jerked a cord and down they went, man. They weren't even going to look like they were the last one down with that fiery furnace billowing smoke over there. And here's three guys. Do you know how easy it was to see them? Do you know that it was like a bright neon light with sirens going off? You got to be kidding me. You didn't bow down? Listen, make no mistake, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fully understood that they were putting their lives on the line and they knew that the moment they didn't bow down, they were dead. I think they looked at one another and said, today's a good day to die. I've always wondered on what day I would die and today is the day. It was, there was no doubt that they were going to die. So the... Squealers come and make sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows what's going on. And they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship your image. And so, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage. And he commands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they're brought, he brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Is this true? He can't believe it. Before we go any further, it's a good time to start in with with five characteristics that we're going to see now in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you have to have if you're going to live for God in a godless country. Five qualities that if absent, you probably will capitulate to the system You probably will bow down to false gods. You probably will not be identified as the people of God. Notice, first of all, that when we started into this section, immediately they identified the three young men. The first characteristic that you need to have if you're going to stand for God in a godless nation is that you need to be connected, number one. You need to be connected you know how hard it is to stand alone? And it's a little easier to stand with a good friend. Two are better than one, Ecclesiastes said. But it goes on to say, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. How wonderful to have two strong buddies. As difficult as it must have been to stand there, it had to help to have two pals. Three guys look at each other I'm not bowing. Are you bowing? I'm not bowing. No, today's my day to die, buddy. Is it? And standing together, and I tell you, there's a good lesson. God in His wisdom has established the church to be His body on earth. This is a day for the church to be strong. This is a day for the church to be connected. This is not a time for disunity in the church. This is a time for the cross to be in clear focus. This is a time for us to understand that we are about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we are about the righteousness of God. That he is a God who cares about behavior. And he is a God who cares about morality. And he's a God who knows and has declared and made absolutely clear that this is sin. And this is not sin. And my people don't sin. And so there's a clarity here and there's a connection, a connectivity between these three. The first characteristic that you're going to need if you're going to profile spiritual courage in a hostile environment is to be connected with other godly people. Faithfully connected. Your closest friends must be godly people or you will capitulate. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. When you have bad company for your closest buddies, you're not strong as when you're connected to somebody else, some other guys, some other women, men, families, together. We're strong. Be connected. Notice verse 12 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spoke up or when they were reported by the provincial leadership It said that these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The second thing I want you to see about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they were committed. You must be committed. Committed to what? You must be committed to clear spiritual convictions. I'm not talking about spiritual opinions. I'm not talking about spiritual preferences. I'm talking about conviction. Conviction. And a conviction is something that you do not violate. The moment you violate a conviction, it's not really a conviction. You prove that it was a a preference or an opinion. Something you really like. A conviction is something you will not compromise. And so you had better be committed. And it is clear from the testimony of these guys that is reported, they will not bow down to you. These guys know what they believe and they don't believe in that and they don't give in. So they are connected and they are committed. Notice now as they encounter Nebuchadnezzar personally, the third quality comes through that we have to have to live for God in a godless community is to be courageous. To be courageous. Courage is one of those slippery qualities, isn't it? I think that perhaps all people imagine themselves to be courageous. Perhaps all people think that they will be courageous under fire. But courage is one of those qualities that you can't know if you really have it until you're tested in your convictions. When your convictions are tested, that's when you find out whether you have courage. And when you capitulate and give in and yield and take the easy way out and bow down to the false gods, you find out that you're not very courageous. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... We're so courageous. What a great model. The most powerful man in the world calls him in, and this is what he says. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image? Is this good information I have? Now, verse 15, he's going to give him a second try. If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the instruments, the bagpipes, all kinds of music, then fall down and worship the image that I've made. It'll all be well and good. You can get out of here. You can live to see another day. Verse the next, uh, uh, As we move on in verse 15, it says, But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God, little G, who will deliver you out of my hands? He thinks he's big stuff. You talk about courageous. Listen to this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, Well, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And we don't have to give you answers. You're just the king. We're God's men. If this be so, on this matter here, you want to pitch us in the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, verse 18, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? What do you think Nebuchadnezzar just recoiled? King, we don't have to listen to you. And furthermore, our God will protect us if he wants to. But if he doesn't, so be it. Because They had conviction, and they were courageous. And number four, you have to be convinced. You have to be convinced that God can and will, according to his will, deliver you. Where did they get those convictions? What made them so convinced that God would and could deliver them? As far as I can tell, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's personal life experience had been one of unanswered prayer. No doubt they hid behind a couch in their living room when Nebuchadnezzar came sweeping through with his army and grabbed them and, and handcuffed them and shackled them and took them 700 miles away, perhaps brutally murdered their family right in front of their eyes as they cried out to Yahweh, Save your people! And nothing changed. And they cried out to God as they were emasculated and as they were tampered with and as they were put into place in the king's palace. As far as I can tell, God did not answer their prayers. And they had not seen deliverance like this in their lifetime. And in fact, as I think about it, as Moses stood at the shore of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army came in and the dust cloud moved closer and destruction was sure and inevitable. And as Moses cried out to God for deliverance and the waters were parted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not there. That was long before they lived. And when General Joshua crossed the Jordan and went in with the strangest of military orders to come to this impregnable fortress called Jericho and to march around it once a day, And then seven times on the seventh day and toot their little horns. Yeah, that's good military strategy. March around and toot your horn. And then the walls fell and the earth shook and God gave them a great victory. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not there. And when David stood with disgust and watched the Israelite army run in fear from the behemoth Goliath, and picked up a stone and flung it between his eyes and sunk it in his forehead and cut off his head with Goliath's own sword, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not there. The closest thing they had ever seen to God delivering them was in chapter 1 with the grains and the vegetable thing and the smooth skin. That's not quite up to the speed of a deliverance from a fiery furnace. So where did this come from? This courage and this this conviction that they were so convinced that God would and could deliver them should He so desire. I'll tell you, you don't have to turn there right now, but in Psalm 78 it says clearly that we are to tell these great stories of old to the next generation so that they will know and fear Almighty God. I'll tell you how they knew. They knew from sitting around the dinner table and hearing their fathers and their grandfathers tell them the stories that their fathers told them about what God had done in Israel of old. And they believed it unequivocally. They weren't there to see it. They hadn't experienced it. And in fact, they lived in a time in Israel when the culture was in downgrade and the people were corrupt and God was not moving in miraculous ways among the people, but they knew he had and they knew he could. That's the kind of conviction we have to have. And so they were convinced. Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 19, is filled with fury. And the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered, it's like, it's over! He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I take that to be a figure of speech. I take it that these are clay, these mounded clay kilns for making charcoal. They're still present in Iraq today. They have vents out the top. They have air vents on the sides that they can open and control the amount of air getting to the fire. And I take it that he poked that bad boy full of holes and let the O2 get to it. And the fire was just... And he's beside himself in a berserk rage. You don't talk to the most powerful man in the world like that. Let your God deliver you. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. It's like, get rid of them. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. I took them up on the side somehow. The heat is rolling up out of that furnace so intensely that these powerful, mighty men of the military, as they held them and tossed them in, the heat is so scorching and perhaps the, the, the fire is taking the oxygen so out of the air that it killed them. And they drop them down in, through a hatch, into this huge kiln furnace. Roaring fire. Verse 24, you've got to love this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He's sitting there watching it all. He looks through a vent hole, no doubt. He declares to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, O king, you're right, it's true. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Do you believe this story? I believe it. You can call me a fool if you want to. We had better be convinced that this is the kind of God we serve. And we had better have some kind of courage and conviction so that we can, number five, be calm. Be calm. The fifth fifth point that I want to suggest that we need to maintain as God's people in a godless culture is to be calm. You don't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego marching and picketing, and I'm not saying there's not a time for that. You don't see him arming up with semi-autos. You just see him waiting on God. You want to chunk me in the furnace? Chunk away. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? It appears that Nebuchadnezzar was given eyes to see into the spiritual world and that God himself, perhaps in the form of the second member of the Godhead, in a Christophany, a a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ himself, came and ministered and walked in the furnace with them. Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. They come out, nothing but the ropes had burned off. They don't even smell like smoke. We have a miracle working God. But I believe with all my heart that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fully believed the moment those soldiers released them into the furnace that they were going to enter the presence of the Lord for eternity, they were going to die. They did not expect to be saved. But God did a great thing. Do you know that had they capitulated, had they said... On the outside, I'm bowing down, but on the inside, I'm standing up. And God sees my heart that they would have never borne testimony of the greatness of God before the greatest king, one of the greatest kings who ever lived on the earth. Notice what his response was. The king responds with a decree. Look down to verse 29. He recognizes that the fire had no power over their bodies. He recognizes that an angel from God had been sent to deliver God's servants. And look look at the end of verse 28. You've got to underline it in, in, in the Bible. He delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, the king says, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted them. And they pretty much lived happily ever after. Had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego yielded to the weakness of their flesh, They never would have had a testimony before King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, I think that in the same way that there was a day that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tested in their faith, that there is a day coming when our church will be tested. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all embedded in and part of a a pagan political system, and they served the king faithfully. But the day came when the ruling came down that on this ruling, I do not compromise. I can do this, and I can do this, and I'm going to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But on this day, this is the line in the sand, and they clearly knew what day that was. And because they were connected, and they were committed to God with all their hearts... And because they were courageous and convinced that God could deliver them and they stayed calm, God was able to do a work through them that he would not have been able to do through weakness. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. I do know that that's a name that is not very popular or politically correct. And I know that to be a Christian now is to make you suspect there are clear and reliable reports showing that our own government is investigating Christians now simply because they're Christians. I'm not a fearmonger, I'm not paranoid, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I just think we have a lot of godless people whose minds and hearts are ordered by the prince of the power of the air. And the Bible speaks of a day of lawlessness. And that though our country was founded upon significant biblical principle, it is not appreciated, it is torn down, and we live in a changing culture. You can become bitter, you can become caustic, you can become cynical. I would say, connect up with God's people. Develop your convictions. Become more and more convinced that God is who He said He is. Stay calm. And God will show you how to stand when everybody else bows down. This is not a day to bow down and capitulate. It's a day to stand and be true to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Fellowship Bible Church. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this great story in our Bibles. What an encouraging story it is. Father, we recognize that in ages past you have worked through your people in marvelous ways we also recognize that in your sovereign oversight you have allowed many of your people's to be killed or taken away to lose everything for the cause of Christ father as we see the encroachment of sin and lawlessness and an irrational paranoid leadership, I pray that you would help us as a church to not be caustic, to not be cynical, but to live out the love of Christ, to recognize that we're pilgrims heading to a heavenly city, that we've, we are ambassadors of you, given a mandate to share the gospel and to live it out in a loving and calm manner. And Father, may we see your hand at work. Show us how to raise up our children to love you, even when few people around us love God. Give us a growing confidence in our Bibles when the masses around us have nothing to do with our Bibles. Father, may we see Christ crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and coming again. May we live for Jesus regardless of the cost. Show us how to be your church. Show us how to stay calm. Show us how to be clear-headed. Show us how to be courageous. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.